2: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
0: Hey, before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let y'all know that one of my favorite educators in the sexuality space has started her own podcast, and I wanted to tell you all about it. Educator and best-selling author, Dr. Emily Nagoski, you might have heard of her, answers questions about sex with the latest science on her new podcast, Come As You Are. Get a modern guide to sexual awakening backed by groundbreaking research about desire, anatomy, orgasm, and much more. In conversation with her producer, Emily debunks cultural myths and flips the script on everything you thought you knew about sex and sexuality. Listen to Come As You Are wherever you get podcasts and unlock your most pleasurable life in the bedroom and beyond. I know I'll be tuning in and I hope you will too. Okay. Let's get into the episode. Hey, welcome to Sensual Self. I'm Evian Whitney, and this is a space for you to slow down, tune in, heal, and feel the sensations and pleasures of your sensual body thank you for being here i've been on a journey of sexual liberation and sensual self-discovery for a minute (laughs) and as i've worked to uncover who i am within these realms of sexuality identity and pleasure and outside of narratives of shame trauma and fear I've experimented with all kinds of ways of being a sexual person. And that experimentation is important. It helps us try on different ways of being. It helps us find our pace and place within identities that we've been told are not ours to fold ourselves into, that we're not allowed to express ourselves within. For example, after exploring certain kinks for myself, I realized rather quickly that, much to my dismay, I am not a kinky person, (laughs) which, you know, is a little bit sad for me because being kinky seems so fun. I mean, I have a lot of kinky friends who get their entire lives exploring their kink identities, but um, through experimentation, kink doesn't do anything for me, and I've learned to be okay with that. Which isn't to say that I'm a boring bitch in bed because, listen, I can rock your world. (laughs) But that's neither here nor there. I digress. Anyway, (laughs) something I haven't been able to stop thinking about is how a lot of the experimentation I've done within my sexual self didn't always come from a place of authentic curiosity. It came from a pressure to be a certain kind of sexual person with a certain kind of sexual desire that our culture has told me is the ideal way of being. It came from this place of me feeling like in order to be a true sexual being, in order to be fully sexually liberated, I had to be someone I'm not. And for me, that showed up as faking it till I make it with things that just didn't do it for me but I felt like I needed to keep trying and persuade myself into liking it. This feeling, this impulse, really, of needing to be someone I'm sexually not doesn't come from me. I mean, it comes through in my own voice, but it didn't originate from me. This voice isn't of me. It's a voice of cultural should. It's a voice of societal shame. It's a voice of compulsory sexuality. Compulsory sexuality, if you've never heard of it before, is the assumption that everybody is sexual, that not only is sex a universal experience for all, but that being sexual is a biological imperative, and that everyone is meant to desire and have it in the same or similar ways. And our society is steeped in compulsory sexuality. Underneath the influence of compulsory sexuality are enforced sexual norms, ideals, and social attitudes that say that we're supposed to both want and have sex frequently, that our bodies are supposed to experience sexual desire and attraction in a specific kind of way, and that if we deviate from this norm, and I'm putting norm in bunny ears, there is something wrong with us and we need to be fixed. I have felt the weight of compulsory sexuality throughout my entire life. It's one of the biggest reasons I felt pressure to be someone I wasn't sexually, to even go so far as to seek medical intervention to fix my low libido, to essentially run from the true experience I have as an asexual person. Compulsory sexuality has had a big influence on my life. And I imagine it has had a big influence on your life as well. And as I'm in this place of reflection about the ways I've experimented and the identities I've landed on, I've been having some big thinks about what it means to refuse compulsory sexuality and find authentic expression in my own sexual and sensual self, even if it goes against the quote unquote norm. And this is where I'd like to introduce you to today's guest. Sharonda J. Brown is a Southern-grown essayist, editor, storyteller, and author of the book Refusing Compulsory Sexuality, A Black Asexual Lens on Our Sex-Obsessed Culture. And in this conversation, they speak to us about the many ways compulsory sexuality shows up in our world and how it's connected to every single system of oppression trying to dissociate us today from ableism and racism to the gender binary and capitalism. You're going to hear me gush all about Sharonda's book in a moment, but I'll just share now that this book changed my life. It helped facilitate some very important dialogues with myself about the ways my sexuality and the pursuit of my sexual freedom has been usurped by compulsory sexuality. It also helped remind me of the inherent power of my asexuality, not just as a queer identity, but as a refusal of being someone I've been told I'm not supposed to be. Throughout her book, Sharonda helped me find deeper pride in my ace identity And to see it as an act of resistance against all the voices and forces that tell me I'm not good enough as I am. And this conversation in particular helped surface a declaration that I'm moving through that my asexuality, me being ace, is an example of how I am decolonizing my sexuality in real time. And I am forever grateful for that. So let's dive into this episode, let's get into the muck of compulsory sexuality, and dream up new ways we can actively refuse the harm and pressure of what has been deemed normal. Sharonda, welcome to Sensual Self. Hi, thank you for inviting me. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you for being on the show. Um, I am so jazzed that we're about to have this conversation about your book, Refusing Compulsory Sexuality. It was such a beautiful gift for me to read as I am continuing to understand and embrace my own ace identity. And I just wanted to take this moment to, like, say thank you to you for writing it, uh, for the labor of love and power that you weaved within the book. Um, I wish you could see a picture or video of it. It is, like, I'm, like, writing in the margins. Um, I just just opened one page, and it's, like, in the margins I wrote, bitch, go off. Like, I was... (laughs) I was having so much fun reading this book, and also just getting my life, getting affirmation. Um, what, what you've written here is medicine, and I'm just so appreciative of of the labor that it took, of the time and the intention uh, that you you made to create it. So thank you, thank you.
1: Well, thank you for saying that. I'm just um, I'm glad that it's doing what it was meant to do <laughs> because sometimes when you create things you never know how it's going to be received and so far it seems like people are are getting things out of it which is what I wanted so I'm grateful for that
0: Yeah it it feels like I don't know maybe it's just where I'm at and where we're at within this conversation around asexuality but it feels like books like these about the ace identity are just like I don't know. I when, when I talk to people about this book, when I talk to people about Angela Chen's book Ace, they have similar feelings as I have. Like not like, mm. "Oh, this was a good read," but more like, "This book changed my life." And I don't know, I wonder if you could speak to what you're noticing around these conversations about asexuality that are coming more to the forefront, you know, um that there are these really incredible comprehensive books that are being written like yours that are helping to demystify and destigmatize asexuality. And it just feels like a really, I don't know, it feels like a really exciting time.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I've i talked to uh, Angela Chen about this. Um, we have done an event together and we both have expressed this sort of exasperation with what we would call asexuality 101, um, which is like a very basic introduction to what the asexuality spectrum is and what folks on the spectrum might desire or not desire. Um, And we just wanted more. Uh, We want to go beyond the 101 conversation and get into the things that are complicated and nuanced and Uncover things that people didn't even know were there. Um, I'm excited to see what happens after this <laughs> because I know that my book is just a, like a beginning in itself, even though it's not asexuality one on one it's still just the beginning of something, and I'm interested to see what people will what type of work will come from what people use my book as a stepping stone to, as like a a, a a catapult to something else. I'm ready to see where we're going to go from here. But yeah, I do think we are in a, a an interesting moment, an exciting moment, but it's also an uncomfortable moment because a lot of people have gotten really comfortable and complacent with asexuality 101. They only want to talk about the things that feel safe to talk about. And oftentimes, when people like myself and Angela Chen and other um, ace-identified people, especially people of color, yes. uh, when we talk about things that ask people to dig deeper, they get uncomfortable and so they get resistant to it. So it's an interesting moment to exist in to see that there are people who want more and also people who are are, are scared to ask for more. Uh, for fear of what sort of um, sort of repercussions that might mean for us.
0: Yeah, this is reminding me of of a quote um, in your book. Um, you say asexual consciousness recognizes that none of the things we know to be true about sex are immovable, and they are always influenced by societal expectations, permissions, or other environmental factors. And I mean, God, there's so many, there's so many instances in this book where I was reading and it was really, (sighs) let me take a step back. So you're speaking about asexual 101 and I feel that even in the career that I've had as a sex educator, I am still understanding what it means to be an ace person, both for myself and also for other people. And what I loved about your book was that it moves past this conversation of this is what ace people are, and this is how ace people have relationships, and you're really giving us a very critical look at the ways that our world views us as sexual beings and the way that this world pushes sex upon us as of as as many different things or for many different reasons um, and yeah, I really appreciate that. I think that a lot of the things that I've read about ace, um, ace identity is within that 101 space or is very um, like a you know, personal memoir or personal experience. And so I loved the way that you weaved asexuality as, um, as a queer identity and as, as a radical identity that is pushing back against compulsory sexuality
1: yeah and that's not to say that asexuality one o one conversations are not valuable. They absolutely are. If we didn't have them, we wouldn't be where we are now. They are still needed for people who are just discovering um asexuality either as an identity for themselves or someone they love or just in general. They're still needed i just I wrote the book for people who are beyond that um because we we need. To be able to grow as well, we need to be able to have space to have those conversations that we need while also holding space for the people who still are working through the Asexuality 101 conversations.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Well, speaking of Asexuality 101, (laughs) uh, I wondered if you could define compulsory sexuality for us and also speak to how it shows up in the world.
1: Uh, Sure. I very loosely define it um, in the book in this way. So basically, I, I think of compulsory sexuality as a system of beliefs that are founded on the idea that sex is compulsory, as in sexual engagement is conceived of both interpersonally and institutionally as a requirement for human existence. Um, So basically, it is the idea that everyone desires sex, and those who say they don't desire it are either lying or sick. And this shows up in our world in many places, from the virgin shaming of younger folks by their peers to our marital laws, which position non-sexual marriages as less legitimate and less binding because they haven't had Uh, haven't been consummated. Um, And I interrogate in one of the chapters in my book, um, the fact that there have been multiple attempts in the past few years to raise this sort of public anxiety around a so-called sex recession in the U.S. because younger generations are reporting um, having less sex than older generations did at our age. And this yes, has been talked I, about as a bad thing.
0: Yeah. I remember <laughs> the hullabaloo. Like people were like, what? The children aren't having sex? And I'm like, bro, calm down.
1: <laughs> right. Like why? <laughs> right. So I remember that too. Like in the moment as it was happening and as it was happening, I was asking myself the question, why does it matter? Um, And that's how I got to... <laughs> writing an entire book uh, about it because I was, there's a reason that it matters, right? Um, And there's a reason that it's been talked about as a bad thing. And it's because people see sex as something that we're all obligated to participate in for one reason or another. And so when it seems to be a phenomenon that fewer people are doing it, those who are invested in the status quo are going to start to panic because it signifies a shift in cultural consciousness and in the ways that we engage with sex. And anytime there's a big cultural shift, those who are invested in the dominant systems are going to have anxiety about that shift and about what that shift means. Even if those who are participate in that shift, conceive of it themselves as something positive, the dominant culture is going to conceive of it as negative because they don't want to shift at all. Um, And that, of course, is why compulsory sexuality also shows up in the way, the ways that people seek to invalidate the lived experience of those on the asexuality spectrum and the knowledge that we have about ourselves by accusing us of lying, by dehumanizing us, And by committing sexual violence against us in attempts to fix what they perceive as being wrong with us, because they cannot conceive of the fact that there are some people in this world who significantly deprioritize or completely divest from sex altogether. It is so far outside of their normal that they respond to it with violence.
0: Yeah. Yeah in in my experience with with talking about asexuality and learning about it in the various small ways that I've learned about it in in my career in the past it's always been with this sort of like yeah yeah asexual ex- asexuals exist but they're like less than 1% of the population and i even find that to be very minimizing like this idea that like less than 1% it doesn't, It the, the sense that I got from it is like just because it's less than 1%, and which I believe that that number is actually a lot higher, particularly as we are beginning to unpack like the nuances of sexuality and desire and attraction. Um, but this idea that because it is less than 1%, it's not something that we should be paying that much attention to, or it's not something that we should be educating ourselves about, or even considering that we might hold some of the characteristics of being ACE because it's just so rare. And it's so, it's so inconceivable that a lot of people would experience this.
1: Right. I mean, first of all, when I was doing research for my book, I found studies that cited anywhere from 1% to 5% of the population depending on how asexuality was defined in the research study. Um, but I also think there's a, a, a vested interest in keeping this idea that asexual, asexual people are less than 1% of the population, because of what you said, it means that if the number is so small then it's not actually important. Um, yes. And it's not something to be valued or explored or um, interrogated at all. But I think that, just like you, I believe that the number is a lot higher than we know because there are a lot of people who don't realize that asexuality is something that could be a home for them.
0: Right. Yes. Yes. I would love to have you talk a little bit about the ways in which compulsory sexuality intertwines with all of the isms you know capitalism, racism, um homophobia, transphobia, I even got some stuff in there around like ableism as well,
1: yeah, first of all, that's a big question <laughs> um, I know, <laughs> yeah, those um, I don't think I even have time to answer it on this single podcast, but um so as I mentioned. Just a few moments ago, there's been talk of a so-called sex recession in recent years, and there have also been direct lines drawn from that recession to a literal economic recession because when Americans have less sex, several industries begin to be impacted by the loss of our business because we are having less sex, Um, including the condom industry and the apparel industry. And uh, the real estate industry, I think, were specifically cited in some of the the, the literature I read.
2: Hmm.
0: Interesting about real estate. I get, I get the apparel and the condoms, but the real estate, I'm like, how? How does that affect?
1: If people are – the logic goes, if people are having less sex, there are also fewer pregnancies, fewer children born, and fewer nuclear families developed and fewer houses bought. Mm. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, it's all connected. So, and then also fewer babies born means fewer laborers for the empire, um, which is one reason why we are currently seeing so much pushback against reproductive rights. Um, And at the same time, we're also seeing this massive campaign aimed specifically at straight women trying to convince them that being a stay at home mom and taking on the sole responsibility of all domestic labor and being completely reliant on their husbands for financial security is where their true freedom lies and not in the political movements that seek to disrupt gender inequities. Um, It's very interesting that this has been a somewhat successful campaign Because there, I see a lot of straight women, well, presumably straight women, women in relationships with men popping up recently online to say that they want to go back to a time where they could be in domestic bliss, in their words, and be completely financially reliant on the man and not have to worry about working. And it's just so interesting to watch people say that because it's, they're not applying a racial lens to it because there was never a time where black women specifically were not working outside of the home. Yes. That that ideal for a nuclear family where the woman stays home all day and takes care of the house and all the children and and, and the man works and it's a one income household. First of all, that's not, not doable for most people in our current economy, but also that is a white ideal. That is something Mm. that upper class, like wealthy people were able to do. That's right. Um, And so, and and what's also interesting to me is that while all of this is happening, we're also seeing this explosion of male supremacists um, in podcasts. Like they all just bought podcast mics and decided to sit in their cars or at home and popularize these old misogynistic talking points. Um, and many of them seem to be angry about what they perceive as women surpassing men professionally and financially, which we know is not true because there is still a huge gender wage gap. But because the very basis of misogyny is the belief that men are supposed to have total social power and control over the rest of us any amount of progress that women make is seen as too much progress and meanwhile these men these male supremacists are are still expecting straight women to be in romantic and sexual relationships with them and under patriarchy to be in a relationship with a man is to be in sexual and domestic service to them. Mm. And it's all these things wrapped together. Are, people are calling for this return to this very neat patriarchal nuclear family structure that requires women or those who are assumed to be women to be in total service to and control of men. Mm. and it's just it's about investment in heteropatriarchy and heteropatriarchy is always linked with capitalism and how capitalism operates and now this is a culture that has always been invested in upholding the gender binary and the nuclear family as the most legitimate and the most moral way to exist like this is nothing new obviously um our culture has always demonized the other, but I believe that the moment we're living in right now makes it more apparent than ever for those who are who are paying attention because we're living through a pandemic, which the powers that be want us to pretend that the pandemic is over, but we know that it isn't. <laughs> um, we have just witnessed over a million people die and Hundreds of thousands of people have become disabled. People have lost their jobs. People have become homeless. Um, thousands of people are still dying every day from COVID. And all the time, monetary profit has been held above mu- human life this entire time. And, and they've still been preaching to us that in the midst of all this, we are still expected to labor for them. We're real- We are still expected to produce for them. We are all still supposed to be working towards creating that nuclear family ideal, get married, buy a house, have kids. Even though most of us couldn't afford to do that, even if we wanted to. Mm. So that is how compulsory sexuality shows up in that realm. And we haven't even touched on transphobia ableism race there's still so much more to be said um but it's important to and what I tried to do in my book is to highlight how all of these things are connected to compulsory sexuality in one way or another and you do
0: such a good job of that um I was reading your book and just feeling as though doors were being opened and space was being created to allow me to see the ways in which sex is in everything, and also this idea, this idea of how we are meant to be sexual and how we are meant to be in relationship with other people and for the sole purpose of of labor and kids and all of these things, like how it's so enmeshed and it was it was eye opening. To read your book. It was sobering to read your book. And it was also, I was I was kind of taken aback like, wow, how did I not see, how did I not connect these dots? It just, it, it makes so much sense the way that you sort of laid that ground, that groundwork, the foundation of like how all of this is connected to everything, how compulsory sexuality is connected to everything it's it's made me move through the world in a different way. I've been I've been noticing things and um my third eye is open.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um well, you're welcome and also I'm sorry because <laughs> once you start to notice things, it's hard to not notice them.
0: Yeah. I mean what I what I will say though is that I felt I felt kind of relieved actually because I feel okay. like I feel like the world that we live in is constantly gaslighting us. And I myself have felt very gaslit about these topics of sex and sexuality. You know, there's this, this conversation that we're having around sexual liberation and you can be whoever you want sexually, where I've often felt like only to a certain extent, you know? Um and so it was It was a relief. I mean, there are many other things that were, was a relief for me, but it was a relief to like finally feel like someone is just telling me straight, that there's no gaslighting, that there's no like trying to make me see something that isn't there or, you know, this whole like positivity around sexual liberation. Like it just, I felt really just affirmed to read your book and to have it be like, no, this is, this is the way it is. Like there is nothing wrong with you. I think that's sort of what I walked away um, from your book with was that there's nothing wrong with me. The society is fucked up and the way that society has impressed upon me who I should be as a sexual being, how I should be as a sexual being in service of these systems of oppression. Um, it was I was like, thank you. Because <laughs> like, I have felt that maybe I haven't been able to articulate it in that way, but it is all it's i i have i have i've i've sensed it you know i've sensed it
1: okay well um good <laughs>
0: <laughs> but no you're right you're you're right like it it was really overwhelming it was really overwhelming to see like this through line of compulsory sexuality within so many areas i mean even thinking about race and thinking about queer identity, you know, something that I wanted to ask you about, um, is, you know, <laughs> people with a quickness can read out the LGBTQIA plus acronym, you know, like I think yeah. a lot of folks know that by heart, but I'm also recognizing that a lot of people don't really know what those last two letters are, you know, intersex and asexual. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's been really frustrating for me to witness. It's like, you know, these, I'm, I'm having conversations with people about, you know, queer identity and I think folks forget that asexuality is a queer identity. And so I wondered if you could speak a little bit to that because, um, the way that you spoke to it so beautifully in the book, it really, it really resonated with
1: me. Uh, sure. Well, I mean, first of all, asexuality has always been present. Um, there have always been iterations of what we now understand as the asexuality spectrum. It's been there in scholarship, in medical journals, in marriage pamphlets. Like a- asexual people are discussed right alongside people with non-heterosexual desires and non-normative gender expression.
2: Mm. We are
1: othered right alongside them, demonized pathologized and theorized about in order to uphold heterosexuality and cisgender identity as the only way to be considered normal and therefore healthy, which is where the ableism comes in. As we uh, mentioned earlier, it's considered unhealthy <laughs> to be anything other than heterosexual and cisgender. And Looking at how iterations of asexuality or non-sexuality have been treated in the field of psychiatry specifically is a perfect example of this because many people, first of all, m- people within the medical industry still consider asexuality to be a medical or psychological condition, um, as I discussed in my book. Yep. So they they think it's a form of mental illness rather than its own sexual identity. And that has also been true of pretty much any sexuality outside of heterosexuality. Queer people have have been identified as mentally ill and literally been committed to mental institutions for not being cis or heterosexual. And those other forms of non-sexuality have thankfully finally been removed from the DSM But forms of non-heterosexuality have not. There are literal descriptions of asexuality in the DSM being identified as a form of mental illness. Um, But even if none of that were true, asexuality would still be a form of queerness because to be asexual is to exist outside of social expectations of heterosexual performance. And that means that asexuality is seen as a threat to the dominant social systems because all forms of non-heterosexuality are a threat to those systems. And also, asexual folks are more likely to be single or unmarried. We're less likely to reproduce, uh, which means that we are less likely to participate in the making of the heteropatriarchal nuclear family. And we are more likely to prioritize other types of love and family, which places us squarely in a box outside of heterosexuality. Um, But queerness is also a politic, right? Which is important to name. Um, And many asexual people, just like other queer people, are politically invested in Challenging the dominant systems that oppress non heterosexual and non cisgender identities.
0: Yeah, I, I cracked open your book to something that I highlighted um, on this topic. This is in the chapter Gatekeeping, um, and I wanted to read it. So I ask what exactly is the connective tissue between the experiences of those who call ourselves queer? What is the distinct criteria that supposedly disqualifies asexuals from being able to claim queerness or even exist in LGBTQIA spaces despite the presence of the A in the acronym? Is it discrimination, invalidation, and violence based on their sexual or gender slash sex variant identities? Is it failing to perform heterosexual or cisnormative social scripts and being ostracized for it? Is it institutional mandates and unwritten rules that don't take their sexuality or gender slash sex into consideration or are specifically designed to other people like them? Is it having their very existence and the validity of that existence up for constant debate? Is it feeling invisibilized in mainstream media and cultural artifacts because the relationships or gender sexes depicted therein rarely, if ever, reflect their own experience with these things? Is it feeling largely isolated and distinctly barred from being able to relate in social settings where the conversations operate on the assumption that everyone involved has a universal experience with sexuality or gender sex? And that experience is typically a cis heteronormative one. And you, at the end, say the asexuality spectrum is filled with people who experience these things. <sighs> I, I loved, I loved that stream of questioning. I loved that. Oh,
1: thank you. Um, you know, I I don't know if other people have this, but I often forget about the things that I have written. <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> sometimes people remind me and I'll just be like, damn, I wrote that. Okay.
0: Yes, you did. Yes, you did. And it, it's like, I, I also experienced that too. I also experienced yeah. that too. But yes, my friend, <laughs> you did write that. And I am so grateful that you did. And I, I just, I felt that that stream of questioning was a beautiful rebuke of the people who dare to question whether or not asexual people are queer and deserve to be within um within these conversations of queer identities i I really loved that
1: The first two chapters I dedicated to some well also a bit of the introduction some some of that was asexuality one o one but more so as like a reminder of just in case you forgot here's some information and i also especially in the in the gatekeeping and acephobia chapter. I was thinking about specifically what are all the the invalidating and gaslighting (laughs) uh, things and talking points? What are the things that I have heard and witnessed um, being used against other asexual folks? Like, what are all those questions that I have been asked and how can I go ahead and sort of ask and answer those in the beginning of the book before we really get into the nitty gritty where I start to talk about, you know, more heady theories and stuff um so that was a uh a, sort of a, a way to get ahead of the what i um predicted might be pushback
2: mm.
1: in that chapter
0: yeah yeah i i wanted to ask you about um i don't know do i want to ask this question Yeah, I do. Um, (laughs) Actually, I have have two questions and I don't know if you'll be able to answer this because I I don't think that there is an answer to this. But for folks who are listening and maybe wondering if they are on the ace spectrum, how might they know that they might be ace? in your own understanding and like, you know, what do you tell people who come up to you that are like, I don't know. How do I know if
1: I'm ace? (laughs) I haven't had anyone come up to me and ask me that thankfully. Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay. Um, But (laughs) I mean, just for me, it was just about asking questions uh, all the time. But that's just who I am as a person. I've been told several times that I ask too many questions, and I'm finally okay with that. Um, But I was just, I came to the realization that I am on the asexuality spectrum as a result of just constantly interrogating everything that was ever uh, taught to me about sex and gender and sexuality. And also, just considering what my personal experiences with those things had been and how they made me feel. Like, one thing that was really eye opening for me was learning that um, sometimes when you think you feel attraction, what you actually feel is anxiety
2: mm. <laughs> because
1: it manifests itself physically. In the same way that attraction can manifest itself physically Mm. for some people. Mm. And so when I really sat and thought about that, like what was I actually feeling after a lot of thought, I realized, oh, what I was feeling was actually anxiety and nervousness. It was not an attraction to people. What I thought was attraction and what I thought was me enjoying certain things was actually just me wanting to be accepted and loved and desired and wanting to experience, you know, closeness, closeness and intimacy with people. But having been conditioned to believe that the only way for me to experience those things was to offer myself up as a romantic or sexual prospect to people, Mm. even when I didn't necessarily want to. So, what was also involved in my personal um, realization was also some um, hard truths, some taking inventory of past experiences and um, past beliefs, and realizing that I was wrong. And also realizing that me being wrong was not necessarily my fault because of the messages I had received. But also that it had led me into some compromising situations that would amount to trauma for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And in some cases for me, it did amount to trauma. Um, And so it's hard for people to look back and say, oh, um, that... Situation was actually traumatic. If they are not ready to deal with the fact that the situation was actually traumatic, mm-hmm. um, and you talked about this a little bit in my interview with you, in in your, um, well, I I refer to it in my head as your chapter.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> can I just say? Can I just say how surreal it was because when we did this interview. I had completely forgotten that you and I had had a conversation about me being in your book. And I was reading the book, um, yeah, The Desire the desire Chapter, and I was like, will... oh, my God, that's me. <laughs> 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 and I had this very, like, out-of-body experience of like, whoa, I'm a part of this. And then I also just felt really, like, giddy because I'm like, God, I love this book so much and I felt so honored to, to be a part of it
1: that's amazing. I'm so glad you had that experience. Yeah. But I didn't mean to interject.
0: Uh, please, please keep
1: going. No, sorry. Um, but yeah, in your chapter you say specifically that like your asexuality is wrapped up with all these other things like um it includes also sexual trauma. Yeah. Um and that was that's an important point because a lot of people will say that that that's also like a talking point against asexuality, right? Like that it's only people who were are, are sexually traumatized identify as asexual. And my question of that is like so fucking what? Mm. <laughs> um yeah. if if sexual trauma is what leads you to, to identify with asexuality, it's okay because a label is not permanent. Like if you decide tomorrow. That it doesn't work for you that's perfectly okay but um people come to identifying as asexual through a lot of different things and sometimes that includes sexual trauma sometimes it's about gender identity and expectations of gender performance um sometimes it has to do with mental illness and sometimes it just has to do with you've always known but for some people, they haven't always known it. that's also fine. Like it's it, it's really important to to understand that you are not going to come to the same conclusion that somebody else came to. And you all also are not going to get there the same way that somebody else did. So me telling you how I got there may or may not be helpful for you. Right. Um. It's really about what speaks to you and what you can identify with as you are are reading and um listening to other people's testimonies. Yeah. about how they arrived at their um understanding of themselves as an asexual person.
0: Mhm. Yeah, I I get that question a lot of like how do I know that I'm ace? I don't know, maybe I could be and you know, I I'm never prescriptive about it. I mean, there are certain characteristics and tendencies of, of aces that you can kind of look to. But I'm also just like, listen to ace people talk about their ace identities. Like listen to ace stories, um, read books about asexual um, experiences from ace people, because that was what really helped me understand and also like reflect to me like, oh, wow, I, I see myself in this. And um, I I know that that's frustrating because I think we live in a culture that we want to just like know. <laughs> we want somebody right. to tell us who we are because we have been conditioned that society tells us who we are and who we're allowed to be. Um, but what I love about being ace and what I love about the conversations that I have with folks like you and Yasmin and Angela is that like asexuality is so open-ended. It's, it's, um, it's fluid and there's no right or wrong way to be ace. You don't have to identify as ace if you don't want to, you know? Um, Because that's, that's another thing I've heard. Like people say like, oh, this ace conversation that, that you're having or, you know, the ace people are talking about their experiences. They're just trying to get people to be ace like them. And it's like, no, actually, we're just trying to live.
1: (laughs) We're just (laughs) trying
0: to survive. We're just trying to thrive. And yeah, I I want for people to experience that.
1: But also what if we want to recruit a bunch of people like who cares
0: listen i see okay (laughs) thank you for saying that because i'm also like bro it is so fun over here on the a spectrum side like i I feel like asexual people have gotten or just asexuality in general has gotten such a fucking bad rap that we are Mm -hmm. boring we are incapable of love like just so much harm and violence and just yuck energy when it comes to asexuality and that's why i'm so happy about books like yours because it really it really like shrugs off all of that conditioning all of these narratives that are false and rooted in stigma and dogma and shame and the i feel like knowing that i'm ace has been one of the beautiful and most like biggest blessings that I found out about myself because it's now that I know this about myself, I'm able to access intimacy, pleasure, relationships with my body and other people's bodies in different ways, like with more nuance and more presence, you know? So yeah, let's, let's recruit some people. Like there's there's plenty of room over here.
1: (laughs) I mean, I'm not saying I'm actively trying to recruit people, but like
0: I am. I'm uh, saying that. No, I'm kidding.
1: <laughs> I mean, and that's fine. But like, what is the harm in people learning that about themselves and naming yeah. themselves as asexual? It's, it's really interesting that, that this is the exact same talking points that I hear about people self-diagnosing as neurodivergent. Mm. And it's just like, well, everybody just wants to, to be special and cool. And I'm just like, first of all, do you think I feel cool? <laughs> uh, experiencing um constant ableism and discrimination because neurotypical people think that difference is a deficit. I do it, it does not make me feel cool. Um but like also it is like you said, it, it's a very expansive experience, right? There are other things that we are able to highlight and see um available to us in the world when we let go of this pressure to be something that we are not. Yes. That is what I'm trying to recruit people into, not necessarily in naming themselves as asexual. I don't I can curse on this podcast, right? Of course, girl. Okay. <laughs> to be quite honest, I don't give a single fuck what we call ourselves. Like mm. the language that we currently have is asexuality. But I don't care about that at all. I care about naming the experience and and helping people free themselves from the burden of trying to force themselves into a, a box they don't belong into. That's what I care about.
0: Yes. Yes, that part. That part. Before we close, I I wanted to just mention, you know, so much of the book I feel is an uplifting of black folks um, and an uplifting of blackness and, and black queerness and black identity, uh, or at least that's how I read it. I mean, I don't know. It's it, it, that's how my experience was.
1: Okay,
0: good. <laughs> so, so that was that was the right. <laughs> yeah.
1: The, the, okay, good. Oh yeah, yeah good, I, good. I write for black people. <laughs> yeah. First, and foremost. I
0: figured. I figured, but you know, other people might not have that experience. But for me, this book read mm-hmm. black as fuck, and I felt very seen and affirmed by that, by you in this book. And um, yeah, I wondered if if you have any words of encouragement, words of affirmation for Black
1: folks, Black aces who are listening right now. Okay, well, as we like to say in the south we ain't got to do nothing but stay black and die. (laughs) I don't know if that's a saying anywhere else but in the South. I have never heard that, but I love it. Okay. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, We ain't got to do nothing but stay black and die. And I'll add to that and say we also don't have to prove a damn thing to anybody. And we don't owe anybody our bodies. And we don't have to live up to or live down to any of the expectations placed on us and on our blackness, um, and also, I often get called a a pessimist or a negative person for saying this, but it's just the truth. We live in an anti-black world, yeah, and people are going to hate us regardless. So we might as well just do whatever the hell we want, as long as it's safe and ethical, of course. But, um, you know the the malleability. The anti-blackness is malleable, right? It's easy to shape and reshape. And that means that it can be shaped and reshaped to be used against us in order to meet whatever the needs of white supremacy are. And so because black asexual folks are rendered as impossible under white supremacy, as I name in my book, we might as well lead into the impossibility. Mm. That's how I feel. Mm.
0: I love that. I love that, Sharonda. Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for writing this book. I know I've said it a million trillion times, but I'm (laughs) going to keep saying it. This book is medicine. It was medicine for me. Um, Anytime I think that I have understood myself more fully as an ace person, I read a book like yours and I am just like the bottom falls out and I go deeper and deeper and deeper into the more of who i am you know this this freedom this liberation and this taking up space in in who i am and i'm just so grateful for this book i want to encourage everybody to get this book um not even just people who are ace or people who think that they are ace but just people like everybody gets fucked underneath compulsory sexuality. And I think that your book does a really great job of examining the ways that compulsory sexuality affects us all and also offers a, a framework, a liberation, a you know, call to action about how we can refuse it. So thank you. You're welcome. Please tell everybody where they can get your book, also where they can find you, how they can support you.
1: I mean, I'm not a person who wants to be found, but.
0: (laughs) Respect, okay? Like, (laughs) I respect that. But, okay, so tell us us where people can find your
1: book. Sure. I mean, I think you can get the book pretty much wherever books are sold. Um, I don't support Amazon, but if if you got to go there, that's fine. Barnes & Noble, wherever. Um, Bookshop also has it. You can request it to be at your your local library, your indie bookstores, and it is also available as an ebook and as an audiobook. Um, I don't know where exactly to tell you to find it; just Google it. It'll, it's there. <laughs> um, and if you, for whatever reason, absolutely want to find me, you can find me on Twitter at Sharonda J Brown. But I probably won't follow you back. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I love that. I'm in a space myself where I'm trying to divest a little bit from social media. So I love like this declaration of you saying, I don't really want to be found. And I'm like, wow, there's freedom in that even. So thank you for offering that here. You're welcome. Big shout out to Sharonda for coming on the show and conjuring up new ways of seeing ourselves as sexual beings. And if you haven't already, get her book, Refusing Compulsory Sexuality, wherever you find books. It's amazing. It's amazing. As we move into the practice portion of the show, I want to pause and invite you to check in with yourself. How did that conversation land for you? What are you noticing coming up in your mind and body as you digest Sharonda's words? What thoughts or memories or emotions are surfacing as you think about the ways that you've perhaps been shaped by compulsory sexuality? Something that Sharonda writes in her book is that entire sexual lives are imposed on us and written onto our bodies without our consent. And I was just wondering what's been imposed upon your body about sex and sexuality, and in what ways has that imposition been racialized, gendered, and classed, among many other things? I ask these questions because these are the ones I'm sitting with as I take really honest and difficult looks at the way my sexuality hasn't been, and in some cases still isn't, mine. And I think that line of questioning, while a bit confronting, can help carve a pathway toward authentic sexual expression, a sexuality that is all yours, that's intentional in its actualization, and that that sexuality or absence of one, if you so choose, can create spaces of possibility for different ways of being in the world, you know? And this isn't about steering you in a direction of claiming an ace identity for yourself. I know I joked in my conversation with Saranda that I am actively trying to recruit people over to this side, which that isn't my ministry, y'all. But if it was, you know, hypothetically, um, there's plenty of space over here in ace land. (laughs) Come on down. Uh, No, honestly, (laughs) the reason I want you to be thinking about these questions is because so often we are moving through the world without realizing that a lot of what we've been taught and a lot of what we know about things, in this case, sex, comes from a very specific template that's been used to control us or quash our lovely little nuances And I want us all to question the ways we've been indoctrinated into acting out social scripts so that we can come to a full understanding of who we are without them. Or also, who we are with them. Because you know what? You may find in your line of questioning that the social norms that have been imposed upon you about your sexuality and desire are A-OK with you. You may find that you actually feel aligned within those norms. And truly, that is okay. Like, I really want you to know that it's okay if the norms that we were speaking about today fit you better than the alternative. I just want for you to have choice. I want you to remember your agency and autonomy I want you to remember that you are allowed to be and feel who and how you are as long as you are an active participant in that. Because so many of us aren't. And if you're walking away from this conversation feeling like, no, actually, I'm good over here. Beautiful. (laughs) It's just that so many of us weren't given a choice. Most of us weren't even made aware that we had other options to choose from. And I love conversations like these because my hope is that they can remind you of the birthright that is your messy self-actualization, especially if it goes outside of what you've been taught to be standard. And if this line of questioning, if this whole damn episode really <laughs> is destabilizing you, if it's making you question yourself and your sexuality in some uncomfortable existential ways and giving you some feelings of, wow, this really landed for me and that's freaking me the fuck out. (laughs) I just want to say two things. One, um, been there, done that. And two, welcome to the sexual revolution. I also want to point you in the direction of other conversations we've had on the show about this kind of stuff. So you can check out episode 56 with Angela Chen, where we talk about asexuality and sexual liberation. Also check out her book, Ace. It's another fantastic read. Um, Listen to episode 65 with Yasmin Benoit about similar things having to do with aceness and blackness. I'm also going to plug episode 59 with Dana Lynn Knuckles that will jack you up (laughs) in the best way about gender norms and um, I'll put links to all of those episodes in the show notes so that you can click and listen with ease alright y'all I'm gonna head out thank you for listening take super good care of yourself and we'll talk soon Sensual Self is created and hosted by me Evian Whitney it is edited by myself and Tribble Music is by Melody Symphony from his song, Just Healing. For show notes, transcripts, and resources for your sensuality, go to evionwhitney.com slash podcast. You can also follow the show on Instagram at sensual.self. I'm on Instagram at evion.whitney, and you can check out evionwhitney.com to find out more about me and my work also check out my book sensual self prompts and practices for getting in touch with your body you can find that wherever you find books thank you so much for being here and i'll see you in the next one